Good morning, Sanctus Church. One morning before a man left for work, his wife asked him, honey, do you know what today is? Well, he nervously responded, of course I do. Then he left for work and throughout the day, he sent his wife flowers and chocolates and a card telling him to meet him at a certain expensive restaurant for dinner. And when he, meet, when he met her at the restaurant, she ran up to him and said, this has been the best civic holiday of my life. Now, I hope you've had a wonderful uh, long weekend last week and enjoy time with family and friends. And so, so glad that you could join us as we continue our summer sermon series, A Seat at the Table. I hope you've been learning and growing and being challenged throughout all the teachings. It's a series looking at the meals where Jesus ate with people and broke all sorts of barriers. And today's passage certainly is a barrier breaker. Many years back, I, I heard a pastor uh, ask in a sermon, what is the greatest sin? Well, what do you think it is? Well, he went on to propose that the greatest sin would naturally be the one that breaks the greatest commandment. And so what is the greatest commandment? Well, it's found in Matthew 22, 34 to 40. It says, the greatest is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It was a very interesting line of reasoning that stuck with me. Well, this morning, I would like to share probably the most important attitude to have, the posture to live from, and the mindset to have in order to live this Christian life. Because why do we struggle to love God? Why do we desire, our desire for God waver? Why do we struggle with jealousy and envy? Why do we struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness? Why do we easily so judge others? Well, the answer lies in a very important truth I will share with you this morning. Because without understanding and living this truth, we're going to struggle to love God and love others. For me, what I will share is very foundational to my relationship to God and how I relate to people. It's probably the primary lens in which I live life through. And so this morning's passage describes a life-transforming encounter around a meal where Jesus demonstrated the power of forgiveness and love. So let's prepare our hearts in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives to work in us, to speak into us, to convict us, to transform us. And Jesus, we thank you for pouring into our hearts your love and your presence. Lord, we thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, throughout the Gospels, we read how sinners and tax collectors, murderers, thieves, prostitutes were all strangely attracted to Jesus. When they met him, they loved him. When sinners met Jesus, sin no longer had its appeal. Sin no longer held them captive. Instead, Jesus was seen to be irresistible and alluring. Well, Luke 7, 36 to 50, reveals three individuals. Jesus, a religious leader named Simon, and an unnamed prostitute. Jesus and Simon reveal two different ways of approaching this sinful woman. But the point of this encounter is not to see how to minister to other sinners, but rather to see ourselves as a sinner. To fully understand the truth of Luke 7, 36 to 50, we must approach Jesus as the sinful woman approaches him, as a sinner who only needs and wants to love him. So let's dive right into the encounter. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt beside him at his feet, weeping, and her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting the perfume on them. 
See, Simon invited Jesus over for dinner, most probably because Jesus' reputation as a prominent teacher with, had a large crowd of followers. So the invitation was meant to honor Jesus, but in turn, Simon really wanted to honor himself as the host. This is evident because Simon ignored three significant cultural expectations for hospitality. The first is, according to custom, when a guest entered a home, the host placed their hand on the guest's shoulder and gave them a kiss apiece. This was a mark of respect and was never forgotten, especially in the case of a distinguished rabbi or teacher. Second, cool water was poured over the guest's feet to cleanse it and to comfort. The third, a pinch of sweet-smelling incense or a drop of rose oil or olive oil was placed on the guest's head. And in the east, the guests did not sit at a table. They usually lay on couches, resting uh, their left elbow and leaning their right arm free, and their feet were stretched behind them. And during the meal, their sandals were taken off. In his commentary on Luke, Daryl Brock describes the environment of these special meals by writing, at special meals, the door was left open so uninvited guests could enter and sit by the walls and hear the conversation. Why would people want to attend a dinner where they weren't invited and probably wouldn't get any food? Because it was a form of entertainment and instruction. Back then, they didn't have the internet or TV or cell phones, so people would come to see what the rich and powerful did. And in this case, they were observing two or more religious leaders having dinner, and it was an opportunity to listen, and the leaders also used it as an opportunity to educate people, often to show off their intellect and wisdom. Now, as they were eating in Luke 7:37, it says that the sinful woman or immoral woman in the, in the city, otherwise known as a prostitute, came to the dinner. And the text says in Luke 7, verses 37 and 30, that she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She knelt beside his feet, weeping, and tears fell on Jesus' feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Can you imagine the courage it took this woman to approach Jesus this way? Can you picture the humiliation she must have endured, the stares and sneers of those watching, the condescending comments of displeasure hurled at her? As she cried with tears, people must have been annoyed and tried to quiet her. The Greek word for crying here means sob and wail out loud. How would you and I react? Imagine if you had dinner and some unknown person of the opposite sex walked into your home and started kissing the feet of one of your guests. Would you be shocked? Do you notice how Jesus didn't stop her or react negatively? And you read in Simon's response in verse 39, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman is touching her. She is a sinner. Simon knew what kind of woman she was. In fact, the Greek word he uses for touching has sexual overtones. He's thinking that it's improper for Jesus, if he were a prophet, to be touched by such a woman, for her touch was impure. Now, it's natural to assume that Simon knew who this woman was because of her reputation around the town. But stop and think about this. If everyone knew what kind of woman she was, she would have been stoned to death because the law in Deuteronomy 22 stipulates that prostitution is punishable by death. Remember the story in John 8 where a woman caught in adultery was brought to be stoned to death, but Jesus rescues her by telling the accusers that the one without sin may throw the first stone. So why didn't Simon the Pharisee stand up and denounce this woman, especially if everyone knew she was a prostitute? He could have easily said, away with this woman, let's stone her. While there are many possible explanations, some teachers actually think that Simon knew who she was 
by personal experience. Why didn't Simon denounce her? Maybe it's because he's guilty himself. When the law called for prostitutes and adulterers to be stoned, it says that both partners should be stoned. Now, Simon stood up and denounced her publicly. Maybe she could have taken Simon down with her. Maybe he was guilty just like her. And maybe this is why she was in Simon's house in the first place. Whatever she was to Simon, he was looking down on her while appearing holy and righteous to everyone else. Frequently, the sin we accuse others of, we're guilty of the same sins. We're very good lawyers for our own mistakes, but very good judges for the mistake of others. Let me say that again. We're very good lawyers for our own mistakes, but very good judges for the mistakes of others. That's why Jesus says, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, look at the log in our own. Often the sin we see in others is so easy to spot because the same sin is in our own life. And we look down on others to make ourselves feel better. A young couple moved into a new neighborhood. And the next morning, while they were eating breakfast, the young woman sees, saw her neighbor hanging uh, the wash outside. And she said, that laundry is not very clean. She doesn't know how to wash correctly. Perhaps she needs better laundry soap. Her husband looked on but remained silent. Every time her neighbor would hang the wash to dry, this young woman would make the same comments. About one month later, the woman was surprised to see a nice clean wash on the line and said to her husband, look, she's learned to wash correctly. I wonder who taught her this. The husband said, well, I got up early this morning and cleaned our windows. Now you may laugh and think, well, sometimes we just need to remove the speck and dirt and beams in our own eyes so that we can see clearly. Simon sees himself as righteous and the woman as a sinner. Verse 39 reveals Simon's heart further because now Simon thinks he's better than Jesus. Simon looks at Jesus and the woman washing his feet and thinks, wow, boy, some prophet he is. He doesn't even know what kind of woman she is. And if he did, he wouldn't let her touch him like that. The problem with judging others is when you secretly engage in the same behavior that you openly condemn, it creates a self-righteousness. And probably one of the most frequently used and misapplied verses in the Bible is Matthew 7, verse 1. Matthew 7, 1 says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, if people keep reading, they would see that in verse 6, Jesus tells us not to give what is holy to dogs or to cast our pearls before the swine. He's not talking about literal dogs and swine, but rather about people who are dogs and swine. And so to obey this verse, you have to judge whether a person is a dog or a swine. Then in verse 15, Jesus warns about false prophets who, as wolves, come in sheep's clothing. And you have to judge carefully to conclude this isn't a sheep and this is a wolf masquerading as sheep. The point is clear. If you don't make correct judgments about others, you'll be eaten by wolves. Also, Paul tells us that we are responsible to judge those in the church who profess to be believers, but who are also living in sin in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. And in Romans 2, verse 1, Paul is not saying that it is wrong to judge others. Rather, he's saying that it is wrong self-righteously to judge others, while at the same time where we are practicing the sins we are judging. I'd like to share five marks of a self-righteous person by which to evaluate ourselves today. And by the way, if you're the first person you think about applying this to is your spouse, then you are one yourself. <laughs> but let's look at these five. Number one, self-righteous person judges the sins of others while overlooking their own sins. 
As Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. The second is a self-righteous person judges others based on selective standards, not on all of God's word. One of the most helpful chapters for understanding the sin of self-righteousness is Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. The Pharisees picked out certain parts of the law and prided themselves on their obedience, but then neglected the weightier matters of the law in Matthew 23, 23. They invented loopholes around keeping the law. The third thing is a self-righteous person is more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 28, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Self-righteous people want to keep outward Christian appearances, but they don't judge their own sins on a heart level. They put on a happy Christian face at church, but then use abusive speech with their families at home. Number four, a self-righteous person is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only growing and gaining a following. They don't really care about the people or the hearts before God. They just want to gain followers so that they can look good. And finally, the fifth is a self-righteous person justifies themselves by comparing themselves with others or by blaming others for their own sins. Jesus told the parable of a proud Pharisee who went up to the temple and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, he wasn't comparing himself with God's word, which condemns pride. Rather, he was comparing himself with others who, in his mind, were worse than he was. You know, it's quite easy to fall into the trap of self-righteous mindset because we often try to avoid admitting our own failures and mistakes. We would rather compare ourselves to someone who we think is worse to make us feel better and boost our self-esteem. But in reality, it does no good because it's temporary. It masks our true state. And one day when we are confronted with our true self, the shock of who we are can lead us to discouragement and depression. That is why it's always better to admit our failures, to run to the cross and experience the forgiveness and love of Jesus. Back to the text in Luke 7, verse 40 to 42. Jesus says this. He answered his thoughts and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teach. Teacher, Simon replied. And Jesus told him the story of a man who loaned two people 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. And Jesus asked, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Now, both owed a debt to a creditor, but one debt was 10 times larger. The problem was that neither could repay the debt, so the creditor forgave them both. It's obvious that Jesus is the creditor, and right at the table with him were the two debtors. The woman thought of herself as a great sinner, but Simon thought of himself as a pretty good person. But notice in the story that neither one could repay their debt. If a debt is too large to repay, does it really matter how large it is? Simon doesn't realize it, but he's as much of a sinner as the woman is. You see, it's not about how much we do or do not sin. It's about how much we recognize our sin. You see, if you owe $20 million, and if I owe $10 million, and I say, you are in bad debt, does that negate my debt? Of course not. And the more we recognize our own sin, the more we will love Jesus, because we will see how much he has forgiven. 
This is what Jesus wants Simon to realize when he asked Simon the question in the end of Luke uh, 7, verse 42. And he says, who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. See, Christ's attitude towards sin is interesting. While he does want us to sin less, and more than that, he wants us to own up to our sin and confess our many sins and turn over to him. He wants our sin. Luke 7, to 46, it says, Then he turned to the woman and said, and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling there. When I entered your home, you did not offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. You see, everybody has an infinite, unpayable debt of sin to God. But many people are blind to their own sin and think of themselves as pretty good people. So what's the difference between the big debtor and the little? The only difference is the awareness of sin. They were both big debtors, but the woman was aware of hers. It's not the amount of debt or the amount of sin, but it's the realization of it. Only when we become aware of the huge debt and only after we hear of the total and complete forgiveness offered to us by Jesus Christ do we come to him and like this woman out of great love for him. And this is what Jesus explains in Luke 7 verse 47 where he says, I tell you her sins, they are many and have been forgiven so she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows little love. You see, the closer we get to Jesus, the more aware of our sin we become. And the more aware of his forgiveness we become, so we end up loving Jesus more. When Jesus says to, little, to whom little is forgiven, he is meaning a person who thinks they are forgiven little and that they will only love little. Paul, near the beginning of his ministry, said that he was the least of all the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. Now, there were 12 apostles who led the church, and he was saying he was the least among them. Then later on in his ministry, he writes in Ephesians verse 3 that he is, verse, chapter 3, verse 8, that he's the least of all the saints. Of all the Christians in the world, Paul viewed himself as the least. You see the progression? But late in Paul's life, when his love for Jesus was greater than it ever had been before, he looked back over his life and called himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, the chief of all sinners. Do you see? The closer you and I get to Jesus, the brighter his light shines in our lives and the more aware of our own sin we become and we start to see. People say all the time that the longer you live the Christian life, the less and less you will sin. That may or may not be true, but the one thing I know for sure is that it seems to me the more we love Jesus, the more aware of our sin we become. Tim Keller writes, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. Many Christians seem totally devoid of the one thing that is supposed to characterize our experience with God, grace. What saves us is great. What sustains us is grace. What fuels and motivates us is grace. What secures our future is grace. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And it is by faith we now have access to this grace in which we stand. From start to finish, our walk with God is grace, grace, marvelous grace. 
C.S. Lewis uh, once walked into a room in Oxford where a group of his fellow professors were discussing world religions. And uh, they had written down on the chalkboard all the things that the world religions had in common. And they knew he was a Christian and asked him, so uh, what do you think makes Christianity different from all the other religions? And Lewis looked and said, oh, that's simple. It's grace. In every other religion, acceptance is given because you have kept certain rules well enough. In Christianity, acceptance is given as a gift, and you keep the commandments in response to gratefulness and worship. The scandal of grace. Grace confuses and offends religious people because people who've worked hard and kept the rules don't like it when others who've worked, haven't worked hard and broken some of the rules get the same reward they do. Martin Luther said, since the fall of uh, since the fall, our hearts have become hardwired with a wages mentality. We only get what we deserve. We are worth however well we perform. If we do good things, we get good outcomes. And if we do bad things, we get bad outcomes. So if someone does bad things and get good outcomes, well, that's insulting. But you know, that's the economy of grace. It's a scandal that we should thank God for. Because if God didn't relate to us by grace, none of us here would be able to have any hope. You see, the point of the story is not that the woman is a sinner and Simon just has to learn to deal with it. And the fact that Jesus loves sinners too. The point is that Simon is a sinner, just like this woman. And the only difference is that he doesn't realize it. The scandal of the gospel is not that Jesus loves bad people too. It's that he only loves bad people because that's the only kind of people there are. One of the most important and ironic aspects of Jesus' ministry is that sinners felt safe around him. The woman feels, feels totally comfortable around him. Now, Jesus' acceptance of her didn't mean, of course, that he affirmed her lifestyle choice and was content to leave her where she was. Her experience of grace changed her. And grace does not mean accepting or embracing someone's sinful lifestyle. It means loving and embracing them despite their lifestyle. I say that because our society teaches that when it comes to someone's lifestyle, we have only two options, affirmation or alienation. You either affirm them fully or you reject them. But Jesus actually shows us a third option, speaking truth with grace. Speaking God's truth to them, not in a way that pushes them away or shuts off the relationship. God desires transformation. His truth is imparted to bring change. Jesus came not to just give grace, but in 1 John 1, 17, it says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Can I ask you, when was the last time you wept over your sin and salvation? If the answer is never, we have a problem. If our faith is cold and our heart is hard, and if our worship feels fake, pray that God opens our eyes to know how amazing grace is. To see how high and wide and deep and long God's love for you actually is. For those of you who came in here with mistakes and shame and pain, I want you to hear this from me. You are not your divorce. You are not your abuse. You are not your pride. You are not your addiction. You are not your failure. You are not your disappointment. You are not your pain. You are not your sin. You are not your financial loss. You are not your sickness. You are not your business struggles. You are not your past. You are not your future. You are not your bad choices. You are God's child. And that's who you are. So what is the key to maintaining our deep love for God and others? What is ultimately the most important perspective we need to live this Christian life? 
For me, the fabric of my faith and love for God is found in living with the constant realization that I am sinful and undeserving of God's grace and mercy. This attitude is essential to have a posture of humility, to disarm jealousy and envy, and to live a life of total dependence on God. I'd like to demonstrate this through a little sermon demonstration. Here I have a a bag of water, and this can represent our life, uh, Christ's presence in our lives, and more so the mindset of realizing that we are sinners trusting in the grace and mercy of Jesus. And when we have this attitude, when things in the world attack us, when self-righteous thoughts happen, when criticism happens, when accusations from other people happen, the mindset of having humility, realizing our sinfulness and dependence on God's grace will help us manage and deal with these challenges. So, for example, uh, we're going to face, and here's the truth, you're going to face thoughts of self-righteousness. You're going to face thoughts of criticism. You're going to face accusations in your life. But then when they come into us, having this right perspective and realization and posture of humility in trusting in the grace of God and realizing the depth of our sinfulness will help us maintain. And so here is a self-righteous thought that may come in where we start to criticize and judge others. And when we have that posture, it will help us to reorient. And so when I put this pencil in this bag, there you can see it just goes right through and it doesn't affect us or leak. Or uh, maybe uh, an accusation comes from someone and we feel like judging them and getting angry. But the moment that when that accusation comes in, Our posture is able to work in our hearts and our lives and the grace of God is able to forgive and extend love and mercy. And then maybe uh, another trial comes in where we become critical and judgmental of others. And then again, the posture, the mindset of trusting in the grace of God helps us to deal with every challenge that may come externally, internally in our lives. And you can see that though we will face it, we can't run away from it, we can't avoid it. Having a mindset, as Jesus said, when someone realizes how much they've been forgiven, will be able to love God and love others. When people try to affect our lives, we will still be able to maintain our relationship and retain the posture of our love for Jesus. You know, very early on in my ministry, I was fortunate to live and travel and learn uh, under a very godly and saintly pastor. Into his early 70s, I vividly remember him constantly saying, along with Paul, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I admired his humility and his willingness to acknowledge his own failures, even when it seemed he had none. It enabled me to keep a tender heart and one that esteemed others and embrace the people that we may not normally want to. I'll never forget how often this pastor would point to someone living a very evil or depraved life and say, I'm no different from them. But for the grace of God, so go I. I was also fortunate to live with a younger pastor in his early 20s who I also admired because he too had a similar outlook on his own life. He was very quick to realize his own failures, quick to ask forgiveness, quick to reconcile. He, he became very close friends of mine, and it was a colleague and a close friend. And his life still speaks to me today. Even though suddenly um, he passed away in his early 20s due to cancer, I still remember the evening he passed away. We were on our knees praying, seeking God. He didn't know he had cancer. He didn't know what was wrong. I'll never forget how he was praying in sincerity and humility and offering his life to God to witness a young saint pass away essentially in my arms 
And to experience that changed me. To realize the humility that he had at such a young age really impacted, and I, I still miss him till this day. And I look forward to the day that I will get to see him again. Now, the memories of both of these pastors who are with Jesus today continue to resonate in my mind. One was older and another younger, but they both lived with the awareness of their sinfulness and humbly relied on God's grace. Their lives are etched into my memory and are witnesses to me of what it means to live trusting in the mercy of God. Every morning I wake up, I realize how unworthy I am. I have been forgiven greatly and been extended great amounts of mercy, more than I even realize. Sometimes I stop and think, why me, God? Why did you choose me? I echo the lyrics of the famous hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And because of his love, I realize that every day is a gift and every moment to serve God is an honor. I know I'm unworthy and I'm qualified to even be a pastor, but because of Christ's righteousness, his grace and mercy, I'm here to serve you and to love you. Martin Luther puts it well when he, when he said this. He said, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. Sanctus Church, I want to encourage you to take a moment to reflect on how much we have been forgiven. To those who realize how much they have been forgiven, will love much. The key word is realize. I pray that we all live with the realization every day. And so this morning, will you come to the altar? The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness has been brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's leave behind our regrets and mistakes and come today because there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling you and me. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From ashes, a new life is born. And so as we close our sermon, would you join with me as we pray? I'd like to pray Psalm 51, verses 1 to 15. Please feel free to speak out the psalm. The words will be on the screen for you, or you can read from your Bibles. But let's pray this psalm together. This is a psalm of David at a time when he was confronted with his own sin. And he prayed this to God as we pray, realizing our own sins. And those who realize their own and realize the forgiveness will love much. Let's pray. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you only have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight, and you will be, you will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, and from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Do not, don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. 
Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.